welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello again. Thanks for sharing some of your time with me. I very much appreciate having an engaged audience of loyal followers. Maybe you'd like to have the same for your business. Turns out that having a podcast is a great way to do that. The problem is it might seem like a new medium and maybe not everyone you work for even understands what a podcast is, let alone what it can do for your business. I've been doing this for several years now and have gotten very positive feedback, not only on this podcast, but also for Flip Turns, a narrative podcast about how swimming has transformed people's lives and episodes I've produced for clients. If you've been thinking about how to gather the most engaged audience you will ever find, we should talk. The process to get started is simple. Email me, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. We'll develop a complete strategy and we'll take care of everything but the talking. And we might even do that. You'll avoid all the headaches and start connecting with the people you most want to reach right away. Now, let's jump right into it. Paul Orange is the general manager of e-commerce at GE Healthcare. And I met Paul through the ACPLS. You've probably heard me mention that on this podcast a few times. Paul, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on here finally. Mm-hmm. So what we want to talk to, about today is understanding your customers' problems, particularly when you're selling what might be perceived as commodity items. Cause I'm imagining you as a GM of e-commerce are selling a lot of high volume products and, and there are challenges around that. And I want to know how you begin to understand, particularly for those people who aren't yet your customers, how you can help them and differentiate your products and how to scale that to grow your business. Yeah, so it, it's an in, I mean it's a, it's an interesting challenge, Chris. And you know, I think a, a lot of us within the sort of life sciences area face this. And you know, I was thinking about this a little bit today. It, it isn't just about things that we would think of as sort of like those true commodities, almost you know the, the consumable items, which can you know can seem very undifferentiated. I think it can also be true when you get into the instruments because they're competing on the face of it to solve the same or similar problems for the customer. I mean, you know, I've got a bit of history in in microscopy, you know, and, you know, a microscope is kind of a microscope on one level if you look at it that way, right? So you can apply that way as well. And, um, you know, the the unfortunate truth is this just comes back to marketing 101. You've got to understand your customer (laughs) Um, and and, and offer them something that's that's valuable to them. Um, And... um, so some of the work that, that we've done at, at GE, and I, and I have to admit, I'm um, you know talking here about work that some of my colleagues have put a lot of effort into as well. So I want to acknowledge them, um, but but really stems um, from you know some some really interesting work that has been done by a, a group called the uh, CEB, the Cooperative Executive Board, I think they're called, um, and um, they looked at you know, the, the buying process and they, they broke it down quite granularly. I think they went from sort of like 10 steps from, you know, initially identifying the problem all the way to 
you know, that sort of you've, you've, inst- you've sold the goods and the customer's happy. Um, and what was really interesting was that, I mean, it, it was a great chart, which is really easy to explain on a podcast, right? Um, so if you kind of start at the early stages there, what it really said was that if you engage at the, the first stage, which is actually identifying the problem for the customer, you have a much higher chance of winning. And there were two other really interesting statistics that that came out of that data. Number one, if you got involved at that initial stage of identifying the problem for the customer, um, then actually the subsequent stages got easier for you, right? Because, you you know, you'd actually done the heavy lifting at that point. And the second thing was... um, if you looked at the, the people who didn't win, the, the, the companies that, that competed but didn't win that sale, they basically put the same effort into the process as the winner. So can you imagine, you know, all your sales and marketing effort, you know, it's, it's, it's the same effort that you're putting in compared to some of your um, competitors and you're not, you're not winning anything right. So you start from that point of view um, and you say, Okay, so what we really need to be doing is talking to our customers about identifying their problems, right? Um, And when you look at identifying their problems, what's really interesting is the problems are not rocket science. They're they're, kind of obvious. And they're, they're almost to the point where if you turn around and articulate it to a customer, and, you know, especially if it's somebody you've spent a long time trying to get a meeting with or you know you've been trying to contact them digitally a long way and they finally take the meeting and you walk in and you say um so professor i know that one of the big problems you face today is that it's a very challenging funding environment they're kind of going to look at you and go really you you know you've wasted my time to tell me that i I do kind of know that um and then and i think to a certain extent you've got to be realistic that you know the problems that are out there are fairly straightforward, obvious, however you want to articulate that. But where you add value then to the conversation is you come in and you say, the way you're thinking about fixing that problem probably looks like this, right? So we take the funding example, I'm going to write a lot more grants. Actually, there's another way that you can think about fixing that problem, and here's why that works. Now, you don't need to get some sort of immediate agreement from the customer at that point. You almost want a response that's at the level of, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way. And it may even actually be a response that says, you know, this guy's an idiot. Why, you know, Paul's talking to me about this. He's, 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 he's a nut. I guarantee you in most cases, they'll then come back to you, you know, later on and say, can you just expand on that a little bit more? And that's really the, 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 the kernel of this um, and how you start to um, – differentiate yourself um and um it was interesting chris when we spoke before you know you know one of the things i remember you saying to me is okay so this is really all about you know offering you know great service you know things like um you know superb technical support uh, amazing uh, customer service um you know contactability you know fantastic web experience and i kind of you know said those are good things to have and you know the customers will find you out if you don't have them but i don't think that's what makes you successful in differentiating yourself um compared to you know all of your competitors yeah some uh and i i won't argue with that i'm i'm thinking back now to what you've said about going in and you know maybe you know you're in a tough funding environment of course everybody knows that but coming up with that idea about how do you approach that differently 
Mm -hmm. and um, what the process is for that, for observing and figuring out like, this is how we solve that problem. And it's interesting because the way you said it, um, I was, I had a conversation with someone in the last two days, I guess it was Monday and they had a similar approach. They weren't trying to sell me anything, but they were describing their approach to um, what they were selling is very similar. And a lot of times people will walk away from that and go do something else. And then when that doesn't work, they go, Oh, you know what? I should have listened to that other person. Yeah. And, then, and then they're coming back and they go, you know what? I, I do now see. So what, I guess the question is what keeps people from recognizing that your unique approach to solving their problem isn't the right one? Or how do you um, look at their problem and, and find a unique approach to solving it that really is provocative because you're it's a challenger model, right? That we're talking. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's it's certainly got big elements of the challenger model in in it, and you've you've got to be prepared to sort of take those you know potentially confrontational discussions with the with the customer. Um, so I think you know a couple of things start to come into play at this point, Chris, and, and uh, you know. You've identified the the problem, right? So if if you sort of like think about how you would you would work through this, you sit down and identify the problem. So in academic research, funding is tough. Let's uh, stick with 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 that argument, right? You then have to say, okay, so what does our portfolio do? What does maybe mean specific product? Maybe more of a workflow. What does our portfolio do that addresses that problem in a in a in a non obvious way? I, it, I don't even think it has to be unique, you know, and this is where, you know, as a marketer or as a commercial organization, you know, you need to sit down and think really hard about this. And, and from our experience, this is really the, the heavy lifting part of it, right? Um, and you use a lot of um, almost like brainstorming type approaches and keep, I mean, you know, one of the great, great, I think, um, approaches with this is, you know, something like, you know, the, the five so what's, right? Because right. You're, you're you're then trying to match your your product, your solution, what you're offering, whatever it is, up with 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 a, a potential solution to that customer's problem. And and and, it, and it's gotta be real. Um, you know, it, it's interesting just you know, thinking back to some of the other interviewees you've you've had on the podcast, you know that's a consistent theme that you know I think they always come up with, right? It's got to be real, and it, and, it, and it worries me that we still have to say that stuff, right? That people might be inventing things. So your, you know, the, the the thing that your product or your solution does, it has to be real, and ideally it has to be provable, right? I mean, if we go back to you know some of the the work from Hamid, it's 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 very clear, you know, scientists. Uh, or at least technical buyers in, in, in life sciences can be very skeptical and they quite often buy based on a lot of proof. So you need to be able to prove that you can solve the problem in the way that you're articulating. And the other thing that, that can be quite helpful is if you can find um, uh, publications or external data that backs up a, your identification of the problem, and also your identification of of the of the solution, or um, may even be uh, without sounding too cryptic, uh, something that identifies a, your view of the problem, like the, the facet that you're focusing on. It is a real thing, and that addressing it really matters. And you know, at, at this point, you, you're then sort of looking at thinking about how 
how do you go out and apply that um, in the real world? And, and that's where you come into looking at, you know, the type of products that you're selling. So a, um, for instance, you know, let's, let's again take the microscope example. There's probably going to be a salesperson involved in that. There may very well be a demo. So you need those field sales commercial folks to to have those arguments in place when they need them right especially if you're starting to get into tender or 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 other competitive sales situations when you're looking at things where the buying process is more transactional is then then you need to look at how do you get a message out there that starts to talk about the problem um, and, and how you see that across the industry. And this is where it gets interesting, you know, from my sort of e-commerce world is you're then looking for good content, maybe from, you know, thought leaders. Um, you're looking for peer-reviewed publications. You're maybe lo- looking for your own internally generated data or stuff that you've worked on with with collaborators to kind of indicate or prove that either the problem exists, that this is a viable solution to that problem, um, you know, and, and, and take and take the customer through that journey, which they may self-serve a little bit more in, in that kind of a scenario. Yeah. So let me, let me back up to where you said your solution doesn't even have to be unique. Um, mm-hmm. It just needs to be provable. And then you have to have, so to me, I'm thinking that means you have to have a way of expressing what that problem is. And this is something that Hamid sort of talks about a lot, like having that unique viewpoint on why that problem is a big deal. And, yeah. and how much room is there in the marketplace for everybody to have a different one of that? Or is it who does that best? What are we looking at there? So... I mean, I think when it comes down to it, there probably is enough room, right? Because, you know, you you can ask yourself the question, right? Why do we have so many microscope manufacturers, right? You know, they're kind of the same, except when you get to some, like, specific applications, you know, but yet they find enough space in that market to coexist. Why do we have, you know, so many, you know, insert particular instrument product here? I don't want to pick on microscope manufacturers, of course, but, you know, it, it, it's definitely the case. And, you know, it could very well be that your differentiator could be something like your technical service. Your differentiator could be something as simple as price, you know, that let's let's not kid ourselves there will always be a segment for for whom i just need to buy this stuff at the cheapest possible price is 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 going to be a reality and if your you know business is set up your logistics you know whatever it is that makes you do that um allows you to offer that price um you know that could be that could be your reality and what you offer and you know there's no point if you are maybe you know, let's let's just take the example of somebody who does offer great technical service and that great technical backup. You know, you're never going to kid yourself that the segment that you're going to sell to is the price sensitive one because you've got the overhead of that great, you know, support and service and you know, uh, customer success network behind you. Um, so I think there's absolutely the space, and everybody's got to find you know, their own way of articulating, you know, their solution. And it, and it can almost come down to very, what, what, what appear on the surface, very trivial, almost imperceptible differences between, be, between the products. 
Yeah. So is it become a high level positioning exercise? Is that kind of what we're doing? And then uh, if that's true, is it again, communicating it through the right kind of content? So getting, attracting the right kind of people from the beginning. Is that? Um, yes. I, I mean, I think it is, it does become your, uh, when you say high level positioning, I, I actually think it just becomes your positioning period, right? It, it sure. should inform all of that. Um, so in, in an ideal world, um, you know, and, and this is a utopia that I sometimes dream of. Um, obviously you do this exercise before you started your product development. <laughs> it would inform your testing and your entire launch plan and, and continued product lifecycle and marketing. However, yeah. <laughs> um, in the real world, you know, um, you know, any of us walking into one of those, into a, a life sciences company, we have a portfolio. Um, we're, we're looking to make those por- portfolios successful. So to a certain extent, you've got to take what, what you have today and then look how it fits to, to those, those market needs. And, and actually we found that if you do that process, you can, you can also take that process for your existing portfolio, that thought process for your existing portfolio, and then apply minor tweaks to that portfolio. So you do make the product ever so slightly differentiated, not fundamentally different, not reinvented, but you've just done something. I mean, you know, simple things like um, packaging, right? Packaging is a great example. If, if you just make that box easier to open in a, in, in a laminar flow hood with less stuff that needs to get thrown out through the, the biohazard waste, you, you know, that's an absolute, you know, perfect example of a great differentiator. And of course, you know, you can see how upstream of that, the, the kind of problems you're identifying relate to ease of use of products within that environment where people really need to be sterile. They need to, 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 to have a good process cell cultures. You know, it, it's a demanding task and it's, it's, it's soul destroying when it goes wrong. And they don't want to be throwing tons and tons of waste out as well. So, you know, those, those small differentiators absolutely can nail it. And, and there are things that you can do, like I said, to, to tweak the, tweak an existing product um, or just things that you could, you, you know that you have as a feature of an existing product and, and, it, and it gives you that, that right, if you like, to, to take that point of view from that, that challenger model and to, um, uh, and to go to the customer with, with your, you know, your different version of, of how they might fix the problem. And, and I think you know, that's, that's kind of the thing to remember here is you're probably never disagreeing on the problem. You're just disagreeing on the route to solution. Uh, okay, so that's a great example that um, opening mm-hmm. the package in the laminar flow hood. So I have not sold a lot of products, but it, that seems like a, a problem that maybe, I don't know if someone is using a laminar flow hood, if that would be a problem that would come to mind first for them. I say, you know, we need, and maybe it does. Maybe if, if what you're using is so annoying inside the hood, you go, doesn't anybody package this right? But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm also curious about, People, the number of customers that come to you with what they think is the problem and how often you have to kind of shift their thinking slightly and say, well, you know what? What really is causing this whole thing is this other thing. Yeah, and that's that's tough. I mean, as you mentioned, this this, this relies quite heavily on that that sort of challenger model. And um, it's, it's, it, can be, it can be tough to disagree with a customer. 
uh, <laughs> yeah. we need to, just human human nature, right? Um, so, um, one of the things that I I feel is 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 critically important with this approach is um, that your entire commercial organization again, this is a little bit of my utopia, but your entire commercial organization should be lined up behind this. So, your marketing message is reflect the the problem and the solution and, and the point of view you have you're equipping your your whether it's your phone um salespeople your field salespeople um with that message you've got supporting content messaging around that um out through the marketing channels that you use and and i think it's um i mean the, the, the example that, that we continually use internally for this is that typically with an initiative like this um, somebody would have a project. They they'd come up with this the problem, the solution. You know, a little bit of proof. They'd give it to the sales guys, and they would say, "Go out there," and it would be like an army. And the sales guys would run out, and they would turn around, and everybody else would just be sat back on the hill, waving at them as they kind of you know <laughs> were yeah. bearing down on the jewels of death. Um, and 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 of course, it, it it's got no legs at that point. It, it it doesn't survive. It has to be an embedded way of thinking uh, throughout your entire, um, like I say, throughout your entire commercial organisation, and, and and ideally going back into your you know your product development life cycle. However, you're you know you're particularly happen to be structured around that as well. So everybody's thinking this is what we're all about when we're approaching this particular problem. Yeah. This is yeah. Yeah, we all have the same message, of course, which is obvious, but we're yeah. we're all sticking with that and and working that with the customer. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting, Chris, is that you know, I said earlier on, some of this just comes down to, you know, some basic marketing stuff around understanding your customer. There is a you know, I think there's a really important role for segmentation or personas, however, you know, you prefer to do it as an organization. There's a really important role for that to play in this because the discussions that you have, um, I mean, let's take our example of, 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 of funding, for instance. If I'm going in to talk to uh, the head of a lab, the principal investigator, he knows or she knows that funding is tight. I could go and talk to their postdocs. They know that funding is tight. I could go and talk to uh, PhD students who are looking to become postdocs. They know that funding is tight. Uh, technical staff may know that funding is tight. But their view on funding and, and the, uh, the ability of each of them individually to have an impact upon how that particular lab behaves is different. So the solution that you need to propose to them has to be potentially different not always clearly, but it also has to line up with a common theme so that when they get together and they talk about it, they're, they're, they're bringing, you know, different parts of the same puzzle together. And that is, I mean, that's, that's kind of black belt level, I think, of doing this. Um, and I certainly wouldn't say that we've managed to get that complete coverage. But again, from a sort of an ideal point of view, that's, that's kind of where you want to go. And Again, another reason why, why, why this becomes important and going back to some of the data that drives this, um, when you look at complex sales, I think the number that typically gets banded around these days is 6.8 people are involved in decision-making for a complex sale. So in our industry, you know, chromatography systems, 
pick on microscopes again, you know, the bigger bits of instruments, mass spectrometers, there's 6.8 people who, who on average are involved in, in, in saying yes. When we look at some of the more um, transactional items, consumables, you start to think that that number, oh, well, it's, it, it, it's going to be lower, right? I mean, you know, take something, filter paper, near and dear to, to our hearts here at GE, you know, you just think, well, you know, somebody in the lab is, is just going to say, okay, the, the box of filter paper is is empty. I'm either going to go down to stores where they where they have it and I'm going to pick up a new one. I'm just going to buy the same thing again. But if you're trying to have a, a, a discussion about why actually the filter paper you're using isn't correct, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a better solution that helps you out as a lab, you start thinking about, you know, even just within a lab, like I say, uh, lab head, postdocs, PhDs, undergrads, lab technicians, all those people, you've actually got to get them all on board because resistance to change is, 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 is huge, yes. right? I mean, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, my, I was so like, talking to, like I said, one of my colleagues who works on this, and he came up with, um, he came up with a great, a great line. He said, that, you know, probably customer inaction is the single biggest business challenge we face today. And, and nobody wants to change because protocols may be validated or they're just used to using a certain thing in a certain way. I mean, I certainly remember back in prehistory when I was in the lab, I felt exactly the same way. So actually these messages, even for the kind of straightforward um, uh, products uh, or the the more transactional products, it, it's not as simple as, as always as convincing one person. And I would argue that's especially the case when you're doing that through, you know, a content-driven strategy rather than an, you know, an in-person uh, either phone call or field sales visit kind of strategy. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. I mean, certainly as a former scientist, I, I know that that is the biggest obstacle to you know, any salesperson is, I've got something that I think is working pretty well and the risk of change is huge. And so, but I really like, and this could be a whole other episode on the podcast, is messaging for PIs, postdocs, graduate students, storeroom suppliers, whatever, about how you get them all on board to go this, um, while it seems like a small thing and not worth the change, and you tie it back to a funding problem, um, which, yeah. in, and to get them to think about, all right, you might, it might not increase your chances of getting funding, but it's going to uh, make you more productive with whatever funding you end up with or however it is, um, or get you results faster, in which case it might increase your funding or accelerate your funding. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, you know, and I think it, it, what, 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 Again, when we talk about inaction, I mean, I'm sure we all see this in our daily lives. The bigger the group gets, the higher the tendency is towards inaction. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that it's really, really difficult with a group to build consensus around a solution. It's really difficult, especially if people have got any kind of differing views. However, if you all agree on the problem, you've got a common starting point that you're working from. So we're all agreeing funding is a problem. And then I've taken each of you a little bit of the way down the journey to a solution. I've not built consensus, but you all are then bringing something to that discussion. And then when we need to get a, you know, a, a consensus opinion or we need to get enough 
momentum going for, for this group or this decision maker to make a change. We, we've put that in place. It, it, you know, it's that kind of like trying to bump start your car. It, it's really tough pushing it from standing still. Once you've got a bit of momentum up, you know, you can run behind it quite happily and keep it going. It, it is, like I say, the heavy lifting at that very early stage of, of the buying process. That's, this is where the effort comes in. This is where it has to happen. I really like that. So I think this is a great place to wrap up because um, about what you just said, and I think it would be a huge competitive advantage for any company who can do that well. So rather than, you know, having all these people in the lab battling about, you know, which solution to get and everybody's pushing, all your competitors are pushing different solutions and no one can agree on that. Just getting everyone in your target lab to agree on the problem. And then, of course, they're they're discussing that whole thing in the context of your solution because you're the one who brought that to them. It, it would seem yeah. to be, um, you know, halfway over the hill to, to make that happen. Absolutely. And the best thing you can happen in that situation is one of that group gives you a call and says, can, can you just come in and explain that to us again? Uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, what we call a buying signal. Yeah. <laughs> we love those. <laughs> we do. We do indeed. Fantastic. Well, Paul Orange, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really interesting. I love talking about this stuff and because it's not, it's not my area of expertise, but you, it's a, it's a problem that I understood from being in the lab and understood as a marketer. And I'm constantly fascinated about how we get a group of people to kind of do or want, even when it seems like, uh, you know, you're up against a bunch of other people trying to do the same thing. So yeah, um, absolute pleasure, Chris. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I want to thank Paul for coming on the show today. He has clearly thought about this a lot and it's worth paying attention to what he says. I've put a link to his profile on LinkedIn in the show notes in case you want to connect with him. Until next time, apply sunscreen liberally and tell two friends about this podcast. Bye-bye.